If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I cannot tell you how often it is that a person has been worn down and now is ill because they don't know how to say no. You know they've spent so much of their lives taking care of the needs of others, serving others, taking care of everyone else except for themselves. And something about setting some boundaries to set up a life that was not so stressed and harried all the time. After watching these patterns now for 18 or 19 years, I feel very strongly that that was a critical shift in feeling. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I have someone who has changed the lives of so many people. It's breathtaking. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is a Harvard Medical School assistant professor, a board-certified psychiatrist, a physician, and the best-selling author of Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. He has spent 20 years researching people who have recovered from incurable illnesses. His book takes you through the journey of healing and shares stories that are so brilliant, you are unsure if they are actually true. But that is why Dr. Jeffrey's work is so powerful. Everything that he does is so rigorously tested and researched and science-backed. He proves the impossible can be possible and why it is. Dr. Jeffrey challenges the medical industry by highlighting research that often gets overlooked. His book, Cured, gave me true hope for anyone facing illness and disease. Because through his rigorous research, he shows clearly how healing can happen when the mind facilitates the body in doing so. I am truly obsessed with Dr. Jeffrey's work, his book, and his continued research in the field of healing. I hope you enjoy today's episode. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? One of the most important findings that I've taken away from years of 18 or 19 years of listening to people through medical evidence for amazing recoveries is something that Gabor Mate says. That's uh, very much something that comes up over and over and over again. If you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. Our hospitals and clinics are full of people who are just worn down and worn out by trauma, by false beliefs where they don't know their value. And so the more we can help people heal these false beliefs, know how to say no, how to say yes to our value, those are discussions we need to have. Absolutely. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? A life lesson that I've been personally reminded of is how important it is to heal our traumas. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about the shock traumas like 
uh, a rape or a sexual assault or an episode of physical abuse, but the drip of developmental trauma, the ways in which false beliefs can create be created in our lives. I mean, we all grow up in families with our parents. We play with kids on the playground. We have bosses and partners and mentors, and we pick up a lot of beliefs from these people we interact with. And and we make interpretations from these beliefs. Some of these beliefs are true, some of them are false, some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious. But at the end of the day, if we have a mixed set of beliefs, some of which are true and some of which are false, we will have a mixed set of results in our minds, in our bodies, in our lives. And, and knowing how to heal these beliefs so that we can experience the value of who we are, to experience the universe as friendly and benevolent, this takes a lot of work. Just really quickly, because I feel that you will provide such a great understanding of this. How does a negative belief manifest into illness? That's a really important question. And there's a number of different levels we could talk about that. Um, certainly, it's true that if we have the drip and drip and drip every day of false beliefs that don't understand our value or goodness that we bring into the world, that puts us into a state of fight, flight, or freeze, where you have these negative beliefs and interpretations about yourself. That is a very different neurochemistry than the neurochemistry of love and self-acceptance. The, the neurochemistry of fear and anxiety is related to the stress hormones of cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline. And we know on the basis of clinical experience and laboratory data that that kind of neurochemistry causes the beautiful cells in our minds and bodies and in our immune systems to misfire and to begin to attack the body, which it's sworn to protect. And the cells become sluggish. And so our immune system is weakened. The cells of our body are weakened. The neurochemistry of the parasympathetic, where we can experience the love molecule of oxytocin, for example, or the serotonin, the antidepressant molecule, or dopamine, the pathway of pleasure and purpose. That's a neurochemistry that the body loves, and it wakes up, and the cells begin to fire correctly and efficiently, and they attack the pathogen or the cancer instead of the body. One thing that's important to understand is that most of the illnesses from which people suffer are autoimmune illnesses. They, by definition, are the the immune system attacking itself. So the immune system doesn't just keep out uh, COVID and it doesn't just keep out bacteria and viruses and pathogens. It's the immune system that kicks out the early mutations that become cancer if they're not caught. It's the immune system that creates chronic inflammation if the immune system is directed into pathways of stress, for example. And what we now understand after 30 years of research that have not gotten to the clinic or hospital yet is that it's chronic inflammation that is tearing people's bodies down in Western culture. So a person doesn't fundamentally have diabetes or heart disease or or cancer or lung disease or autoimmune illness, more fundamentally, they have chronic inflammation throughout their body, and it's just a matter of time which disease will happen first or which body organ breaks down first. So instead of just taking a medication, it's a whole different approach to begin to reverse the chronic inflammation in one's body, and that's, that's where healing can begin to occur. Healing doesn't occur with just taking a medication. Medication may help you tread water, but it doesn't heal the underlying process. 
I remember reading this line in your book, which I thought at the time felt such a contradiction, but obviously it makes so much sense. And you write, there is nothing spontaneous about spontaneous healing. Yeah, it took me many years to really understand that. In medical school, we are taught that spontaneous emission is a fluke. It has no medical or scientific value. And if you're on the science side, you call these amazing healings spontaneous emission. If you are on the spiritual or religious side, you call these healings a miracle or spiritual healing. But what's true is all these terms are black boxes that have not been unpacked by science. And what is a more unscientific attitude than to say spontaneous remission has no medical or scientific cause? So it's just that we have not been asking the questions. These healings occur more often than we realize. They, I have yet to give a talk where at the end, somebody does not come up to me and say, you need to talk to this and this patient. You need to talk to my aunt. You need to talk to my neighbor. Mm -hmm. These kinds of healings occur, but we don't study them. They have patterns that uh, they follow across a wide set of illnesses. Um, and there's a lot we can learn from understanding how these healings occur, what creates the conditions so that these healings can occur, but we don't study them. <laughs> so that's a very unscientific way of dismissing them. Why has it taken really in the last five years for this to be much more of an accepted conversation? And before then, this was separated into woo-woo quack world. Well, the world is changing in a, in a fabulous way. And I believe we are at the end of the era of disease and medications. Several centuries ago, you know, the enlightenment occurred. And so we had a new level of rational thought that became possible. And, and it was a great thing, I believe, that the early scientists took disease from the church and said, you can't blame per that person for being ill. You can't say that this is a judgment from God. And that allowed these early scientists to begin rationally looking at the different diseases and creating a taxonomy of diseases or a classification system of diseases that allowed us to create the diagnostic criteria to recognize the difference between the signs and symptoms of one illness and the signs and symptoms of another. But that's still an era of disease. That's not an era where we even ask questions about how to heal these diseases. And so the era of disease has also been the era eventually of medications. And so now we have a whole lot of medications but it's shocking that as a physician, and it took me a lot of years to really understand this, I was taught to make a diagnosis and start a medication, but we don't ask questions about how to heal an illness. We don't ask questions typically about how to heal a life or a person. That's starting to change. And so we are now at the end of the era of disease and medications, and this new era is trying to be born where we actually ask questions about how a person heals. We actually ask questions about well-being and and that's a really different set of questions. But the medical model that doctors are socialized into is very powerful. And so what's shocking is, um, I'll give you an example of how shocking this is a different way of thinking. And so you might have heard of Jill Wolte-Taylor. She's a neuroscientist uh, who had a stroke while working at McLean at the hospital where I work at. She was 36. This was back in the early 90s, I believe. And she went through a long process of recovery and actually had a full recovery from her stroke, documented it, gave a TED talk that became the first TED talk that went viral, it was named by Time Magazine as one of the most important people of 2008. And, um, you know, Oprah has been doing a movie on her life and, and she wrote this best-selling book. It's in something like 30 languages. And so and she talks about in her book, uh, Stroke of Insight, how she recovered from her stroke. 
Well, you think this would be big news, right? And doctors would be all over this. <laughs> well, when she, when she and I met, she said, I've been waiting for you for 22 years. She said, in 22 years, not a single doctor has ever asked how I got better from my stroke. <laughs> so, and every person I've interviewed in the last 18 or 19 years, no doctor has ever been curious about how they got better from these crazy, serious illnesses like pancreatic cancer or, or the worst forms of brain cancer or or diabetes or heart disease. I mean, it's, it's, it's really striking. So the medical model is brilliant in its own way, but it's also very limited in terms of the questions that it asks. And that's starting to change. We now can do research into what helps people heal and not lose one's job in a medical school. So <laughs> things are changing. There's still resistance, but the resistance is less. One part of your book, and obviously I understand there's controversy in recent years, but fundamentally he's a fascinating person, which is John of God. And you went to go and actually visit him. Yeah. So over to you because you can explain this far better than I can. Well, it was very confusing for me for years. I was able to document that there were people that went to see John of God who had medical evidence for recovery from illnesses that in the West we do consider incurable. And I saw amazing things. I saw him take a simple kitchen knife and cut on the cornea of a person's eyeball and people didn't flinch. I mean, it was shocking. I mean, it's really, yeah. I, I, so I was able to document that healings would occur and I saw amazing things. I had amazing experiences myself, but it's complicated, right? Because he's now in jail for mm. sexual assault. Yeah. Many women. So what does that mean? Um, I mean, I think one thing we have to understand is that uh, just because a person has healing capacities that have come through them doesn't mean that they're not a human being like the rest of us. And I think that, mm, that unopposed power is dangerous for all of us. I mean, in the case of John of God, he's a guy who has a second grade education. He doesn't know how to read or write. When he was 15 years old, he went into a trance in a healing center in Brazil and woke up and they said people had been healed around him. And he then became this healer of great power in Brazil, but doesn't have anyone who stands up to him and holds him accountable. And so he's just a human being. What I'm really taking from there is be discerning because yeah. obviously you're coming from such a scientific point of view, mm -hmm. but that isn't to say that anyone who calls themselves a healer can have these life-changing effects, even though we are more open-minded than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I was able to document the medical evidence for actual healings that should not have been able to occur from the standpoint of Western medicine. So they occurred. But on the other hand, one of the books about John of God's work uh, says that 94% of people who go to his center are healed. And I said to him, there's no way, there's a lot of people here, there's no way that 94% of these people have been healed. There's a lot of ill people that have not been healed over a period of years. And he said, well, that's just for the popular press. Well, it doesn't matter if it's for the popular press. It still has to be true. Mm. And so what I have found is that when you begin to listen to these stories of healing, they begin to disappear when you ask for medical evidence mm. or when you begin to really look at the pathophysiology of the disease and understand. Because some cancers are fairly benign. Some uh, you will die with the cancer, but not from the cancer. Um, some wax and wane, some are very easily treated with chemotherapy or radiation, some are not. So every specific illness has to be understood in terms of its own pathophysiology and trajectory. 
And, and so it takes a lot to understand what's really going on in each case. So, but when you begin to ask for medical evidence and when you really understand that disease, these stories do tend to disappear. It's rare that one looks for medical evidence for them. That's why for me, it was a very personal journey. I needed to understand for personal reasons what was true and what was not true. I had a lot of skepticism. I had a lot of uh, challenges from growing up in a very rural culture, a very violent family, an Amish family, had a lot of conflicts about faith. So it's kind of an empirical theology for me to figure out what was true. And so the medical evidence was critical for me. I was just initially surprised that I couldn't explain some of these cases. Um, And so that did have medical evidence. What did you find to be true that has changed your understanding of human health ever since? Well, you know, I went to seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary before med school. So I had some theological training uh, and then I went to med school and then I did a residency in psychiatry. I will have to say that at the most fundamental level, my understanding of what's true has been turned upside down, not only in my the worldview that I was trained in as a physician, but also as a psychiatrist and as a theologian. So, for example, I have come to believe that we are not fundamentally or primarily our physical bodies. I have come to believe that at the deepest level, we really are these souls or these deeper selves walking around and our bodies are an instrument or a tool of something that the deeper self or soul is trying to learn. And so that's caused me to see the physical body, to see the symptoms that we have so differently, um, to be able to read the story of what the body's trying to tell us. You know, what is it this person's trying to learn and understand? What is this saying about their experience of the value? Or, you know, I cannot tell you how often it is, uh, whether I'm studying someone who has healed or someone who is in the medical hospital or the psychiatric hospital and is just suffering and burdened with an illness, how often it is that a person has been worn down and now is ill because they don't know how to say no. They've spent so much of their lives taking care of the needs of others, serving others, taking care of everyone else except for themselves. And when a person is diagnosed, for example, with a fatal cancer, that they will be terrified to hear the diagnosis at one level, but it's shocking how often the response at a different level is, oh, wow, if I've only got six months to live, well, maybe I don't have to go to law school like dad's pushing me to do, or, or maybe I don't have to take over the family business uh, the way I'm supposed to do. And it's so common that many of us live our lives. It's easy to kind of have our lives taken over by the kids who have needs or our partner, husband or wife who has things they need. And especially for women, I think it's a thing where that one can kind of lose one's identity in in this warm-hearted, well-intentioned effort to take care of all the different needs of what people need from them, but forget about their own value and their own needs and their own well-being and be willing to get people upset or piss people off to do what's right for yourself. Now, I can tell story after story after story about this. There's this woman that healed from breast cancer, and she had always been this demure, very polite, lovely uh, lady. I think her husband loved her, but he was pretty rough verbally with her. And in the context of her healing, she became more racy. She became more, I'm going to tell you what I really think. She 
was willing to take up space in the world and not apologize for taking up space in the world. She became more assertive and forthright and just less apologetic and less demure and and all that and less self-effacing, less taking care of everyone else instead of herself. Something about becoming more willing to take up space in the world to say what she really needed and not apologize for that, setting some boundaries to set up a life that was not so stressed and harried all the time. After watching these patterns now for 18 or 19 years, I feel very strongly that that was a critical shift in her healing. To go back to what you're originally saying, because I just think it's such an interesting point around, you know, our belief systems are so influential in our health outcomes. Yeah. Why is it so difficult to change your belief system? Because I know there's, there is desire. I'm sure everyone listening can say, yes, of course, I want to have a healthy belief system to support a healthy life. But where does the block occur for so many? You know, I come from an Amish background. My dad was uh, raised in the Amish um, faith, and they left that community outwardly when I was two. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. But not so much inwardly. And so I was going to public school during the day and experiencing a really different set of beliefs at school than I was experiencing at home. And so at home, there was a lot of suspicion about worldly knowledge, about science and evolution and and the teaching was that the Bible is sufficient for all knowledge. At school, you know, you're learning all these things about that assume that the world is a good place and that knowledge is valid and important and good. And, and that was really confusing to be caught between those two worldviews. And, and that set me off on a journey from a very young age, thinking about beliefs and how do we know what's true? How do we know what beliefs are true, what beliefs are false? A fish doesn't know what wet is if it doesn't know anything else. And so I think the, the fortunate thing for me was I was caught between two worldviews that were very starkly different from each other. And that tension was very painful for me, but eventually allowed me to begin questioning things in a way that sent me off to school for a long time and, and helped me begin sorting this out. But there, it's very difficult uh, when every belief is related to every other belief and it's all within a circular way of thinking. So that's why for me, medical evidence was really important, but it's not just medical evidence uh, because facts don't change hearts. Facts don't change our perceptions by themselves. It takes um, the willingness to open our heart to ourselves, open our heart to each other, 
And emotion is what really allows us to begin changing our beliefs. I think what I really took from that is us all to nourish curiosity. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that being a route to freedom and change. But I also really got from your answer, it's not easy. And I think that's actually reassuring to hear because when we understand changing a belief system is difficult, we're then not surprised when it's quite easy to relapse into beliefs that aren't supporting you. It's like a constant Mm -hmm. strive for new evidence to be able to support a new belief system that probably needs constant validation of like new sources. And medical evidence, was that for you? Yeah, one of the ways I think about this And I have a lot to learn about this, too, because it's such a big topic. But I think the bottom line is that every person brings something of unrepeatable value and goodness into the world. And it's just so easy with the beliefs that we pick up from our parents or kids on the playground or partners or difficult relationships to begin believing that maybe we're not good enough. There's something that Mm. is wrong with who we are or defective. And you know, this is not a health story so much, but I can tell you an example of how this worked for me when I was in college. I was raised in a extreme conservative environment and then went to a college uh, that was liberal uh, compared to what I grew up in, but still you had to sign a pledge that you're not going to dance or play cards or I mean, all these things. And, and I look back on that and that's very conservative, but it was a very liberal world coming uh, out of where I came from. So... And I remember seeing on the front of this uh, very popular magazine, uh, it's this Christian magazine that was basically these people were marching against people who are gay. And I saw the fear and the hatred on their faces. And I remember thinking, okay, and my heart just melted for these people that they're marching against. I thought, well, there's no way that a spiritually open or Christian belief could side against people who are hatred of people is not okay. Fear of people in that way is not okay. And I didn't have the way to justify that theologically at the time, but my heart knew something to be true. Mm. My heart knew more than I can tell. And I think sometimes that is the path into a new worldview and into a new set of beliefs where we can open our heart to ourselves and to others and connect. And even though we can't justify it, theologically or scientifically yet, but we know more than we can tell. And that for me repeatedly has been a path into truer beliefs. And so again, this thing that we each have value and begin to see what's right with each other instead of what's wrong and see ourselves what's compassionate and right and not judgmental. That is the path to a new set of beliefs, I believe. I'd love to talk about your research into inflammation and the factors that are potentially leading us into this chronic inflammation that we see in the Western world, especially. And some of the research that you talk about in your book includes the China study, and then also the ketogenic diet. What has now informed your thinking around how we can be looking after ourselves to reduce inflammation? Yeah, so we can do that from both below and above. In other words, we can do that with nutrition uh, from below uh, by changing and healing uh, the inflammation in our body at the biological level with um, providing non-inflammatory foods and nutrition and uh, nutritional density that heals the body rather than creates inflammation. Um, And that's a big topic in itself. I mean, it's tragic that the standard American diet is so inflammatory 
every time every country that adopts the standard American diet, it's not that the rates of heart disease or diabetes or cancer or lung disease or autoimmune illness go up. They go up exponentially. And so I have a physician friend who has an organic olive farm in Greece, and he told me recently that this tragedy is unfolding in Athens right now because whereas in most of Greece and in the Greek islands, for example, they eat the Mediterranean diet like they've been eating for centuries and there's lots of fish and vegetables and wine and people spend hours in dinner at night just loving each other, sitting out in this open air and sharing food and food is love and you know there's just a lot that goes with all that. But in Athens, Athens is busy and harried and more industrialized and but also it's now cool to get a Coke and cheeseburger and fries. And so the rates of disease are skyrocketing. And this has happened every single country that takes these uh, inflammatory foods and puts them in our bodies. And so we can heal inflammation from below with uh, nutrition. We can heal inflammation from above as well by changing the neurotransmitters and stress hormones that we're secreting in our body and in the patterns of that. And so like we were talking about, it's a very different neurophysiology when you're, when your body is suffused in the uh, neurochemistry of the stress hormones versus the neurochemistry of oxytocin, the love molecule or serotonin or dopamine, for example. So that's a really different physiology for your body to be swimming in and uh, the body responds very differently. Do you mind explaining what was the China study? Yes. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is, I believe, the world's preeminent nutrition researcher. Uh, he's at Cornell. He does fabulous work. And his book called The China Study is a reflection of many years of his work in China where he, uh, they were able to do a very careful study of thousands of people who ate the traditional Chinese diet of uh, vegetables, by and large, and rice, and then contrast that with people who were eating the Western diet. And they found markedly different uh, incidences of cancer, for example, and of disease. And he was able to just track it out in a really careful way. So his PhD is in nutrition. He's uh, a warrior who has taken the uh, wounds <laughs> that one gets and one takes a stand on these, uh, the, the trifecta of uh, the food industry and how that interacts with academics who are paid to get uh, certain results and the interaction of that with government lobbyists or government and lobbyists and all that. There's science in that that's really important, but it's also spin science. It's business. And so, the, and this is the trifecta of industry and academics and government is uh, relevant not only to the way medications are produced, but also the way the recommendations around food is produced. And so uh, I appreciate his effort to try to be a more objective scientist. Uh, that's been a challenging thing. And it's challenging in any field in medicine and nutrition to make sure that we do this research as objectively as I can. What's the impact of preying on healing? That's a really good question. Um, the research is confusing in that regard. Um, I talk a little bit about this in Cured. Half of the studies support that prayer can contribute to healing, and half of the studies do not support that prayer contributes to healing. The more rigorously designed studies tend to not support that prayer helps, um, but I think this is um, a reflection 
of several issues. Um, and it's also true that, I mean, Herbert Benson, I, I talk about the study that Herbert Benson did, the largest, most rigorously established uh, study on prayer that was ever done, did not find positive results. And there's a question of whether there was uh, some modest negative results, actually. And so I think there's a, a lot of issues with this. First of all, I think that the traditional scientific method is helpful in some ways for studying medications, but it's designed by definition to study the evidence of the five senses. And you can't study the inner world uh, directly very easily with the traditional scientific method. And that's the traditional scientific method was developed several hundred years ago in a Cartesian and Newtonian set of assumptions that those are now slowly being displaced as, I mean, quantum physics has now been around for 80 years and has a really different set of beliefs, but those beliefs are so massively disruptive of our normal way of perceiving the world, it's going to take time for us as a culture and as human beings to become ready to think about the world that radically differently. So we're still relying upon outmoded and very traditionalist assumptions around Cartesian and Newtonian assumptions in our traditional scientific method that don't hold up near as well as we would like. So there's that issue. But I think one simple way to say this is that that we know on the basis of hard evidence that that a college student who is studied with a functional MRI brain scan while they're meditating has a really different brain scan than an advanced meditator who's been meditating for 20 years. The studies on prayer do not any of them take into account the quality of one's prayer. So somebody who has been developing themselves spiritually and in an objectively deepening level way for 20 years is going to conceivably have a really different kind of prayer than somebody who is relatively undeveloped um, spiritually. And so no studies have looked at the quality of prayer. These, like the Benson study, the largest study of prayer that's ever done, the person was just given a slip of paper. They said their first name and the last initial and, and just read a rote prayer for every individual that they are praying for. But there's no attention to the quality of that or the, I mean, all they did was read it. And so there's so much that's, to be examined in terms of looking at the depth or quality of these kinds of issues. That's a really nuanced answer and one that is really interesting to think about in terms of quality of prayer and also motivation for us all to develop our ability to pray in a more of an effective way, which I imagine is probably around being able to focus and uh, have less distracting thoughts when you're doing it, but that would be an assumption. Well, I mean, yeah, I would suspect having paid a lot of attention to the spiritual classics written by people who have spent their lives praying. I mean, they talk about the mind and the heart, about the mind sinking into the depths of a deep heart, and that the prayer comes out of that as less of a petition and more as a surrender, And for example. And so when the heart and the body are surrendered and even metaphorically prostrate before the divine in that way, in a way that has been cultivated over a period of many years, that conceivably is really different than reading a piece of paper <laughs> about a person in a prayer study. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Uh, funnily enough, before I spoke to you, I was rereading some of my favorite bits of your book and your exploration of quantum physics in helping us heal was the bit that I was focused on. And 
And it had a bit of a light bulb moment that the power of the observer in being able to change an outcome. Right. On a day-to-day basis, how does your understanding of quantum healing and quantum physics play out in your medical practice? Well, I think our beliefs are a bigger deal than we've been taught to see. Um, that doesn't, I do, again, I do not believe we can think ourselves into health, but I believe that as we begin to understand what it means to actually, in a granular way, remove the blocks that prevent us from experiencing unconditional love, I think there's something in a deep part of us that does not rest until it experiences unconditional love. And ultimately, that has to come from within and not just from outside of us. We can't try to chase it outside of us. But there's something in us that really is looking for that all the time and scanning for it and doesn't rest until it experiences that. And I think quantum physics turns the world that you and I've been taught to believe exists on its head because we now know on the basis of hard evidence that the chair you're sitting on, the desk in front of you, they don't even exist in the way that we think they do. They look and feel solid because there's a number of very tiny particles spread at massive distance from each other that are vibrating at a constant resonance with each other. So it gives the illusion that the table or chair is solid or that our bodies are solid, but they're not. And so we are just in the earliest stages as human beings and as a culture beginning to map this and begin to step into this world that's so different than we're taught that it is. And again, we can't think ourselves into health, but there are possibilities here that we need to begin unpacking at a granular level for our own lives and realizing our beliefs about ourselves, conscious or unconscious, really matter. Do we experience the universe as a friendly place? And that's not just a simple answer for any of us. There are ways in which we do and ways in which we don't. And there's blocks that we have to that. And what does it mean to remove those particular blocks for this particular life so that one can experience one's value more completely and just be in awe about the magnificent and unrepeatably unique creatures that we are in a way that we can experience that and build a life on that instead of fear. I mean, these are really... For every one of us, there's a different way to do that, but that path is critical. What are your thoughts on visualizations to help someone heal? And I guess if someone listening knows of someone who has experienced chronic illness, what would be your advice and practical steps to be able to activate some of your research and findings into helping them on a path to healing? And, you know, in the book, again, you repeat this, you can't think your way into health, which I think sometimes can be overemphasized in this wellness world. So what are tangible and realistic steps for people? Well, I think one has to, you know, that's that Socratic dictum to know yourself. I mean, that's the one of the points of our lives is to begin to understand these abstract concepts and how it relates to our own specific life and details. And so I think visualizations can be very powerful uh, and important, but it needs to be tailored to one's own life in a way that mm. that is linked with emotion and that it resonates at a deep level with you. Like to choose a visualization not given to you by someone else, but something that helps you wake up and feel like, oh yeah, this is a way out of an old belief that has been hurting me and limiting me. And, And that this visualization helps me experience the wonder and the possibility and the dignity of who we are in a whole different way. And so it has to be something that is matched with emotion, deep, bodily somatic emotion 
And I think our bodies often, uh, our illnesses often reflect the traumas we've accrued over our lifetimes. And so the body keeps the score, the body tells the story. And so how can we eliminate the blocks to experiencing unconditional love? Visualizations can help begin to draw us out of this unconscious set of patterns we have. I mean, again, it's helping the fish experience that, oh yeah, swimming in water, that's what this is. And so, and begin to make an object of it and realize that you can see it now for what it is, as opposed to not being able to even know what it is. I mean, there's a story about two fish swimming next to each other and this bigger fish swims by and says something about the warm water and they go, what's he talking about? So, <laughs> David, David Foster Wallace. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, and his commencement speech, I wrote about it because it's so brilliant. It's, <laughs> all of us are kind of walking asleep mostly. Hmm. Dr. Jeffrey, I am in awe of your research and your outlook and all of this. So I can't thank you enough for everything you've done in the 30 years of your life you've dedicated to looking into, you know, what was 30 years ago. I imagine quite a daring, even more daring thing to do. And so thank you so much for being such a pioneer. And where is the best place for people to find you? Do you host further talks or where's the best place for people to find more information? Uh, certainly, my website, drjeffreyrediger.com, uh, D-R-J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-E-D-I-G-E-R.com. I am in the process of transitioning out of a lot of my daily responsibilities to provide more assistance to people. I get a lot of emails and things, and so it's been difficult for me to keep up with them. So I'm trying to develop a way to connect with people more directly and also in a way that's more helpful to people. So we're in the process of beginning to set up a workbook and groups. Um, I'm in weekly meetings now at Harvard about how to take the next step into a center with this. So we're working on a plan. Hopefully we'll have something in a few months and start to be more helpful to people. Wow. Well, please let us know because obviously everyone would love to engage in all that you do in the future because it is just so brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I can't appreciate it enough. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.